And now it is a tough act to follow too. But this morning we're going to be back in our study of First and Second Peter, beginning the book of Second Peter. And just kind of by way of introduction, one of the biggest heists of all time happened in a, in a town known as Tunbridge, England in 2006. And, and they call it the Securitas Depot robbery. And what happened, five guys made their way into the Securitas warehouse and made off with $83 million in cash. They left behind more than 230 million more just because they didn't have room for it all. How did they pull it off? Well, the key to their successful heist, they were caught, by the way, all of them, and much of the money was recovered, but the key to it was a guy on the inside. They had a man on the inside who filmed all of the interior of the facility secretly, so they knew the ins and outs of the structure, and that allowed them to pull off this heist. It was an inside job, as they call it. And inside jobs are much more common and much more successful than just trying a blunt force attack on the exterior of a facility. Well, this morning, we are beginning the book of 2 Peter, and it's our series called Living Hope. It covers both of Peter's letters. His first letter was written to encourage a group of Christians who were facing violent persecution. That wasn't like an outside attack. It was very obvious, but, and it came from the world around them. But now the second letter is written to the same group of Christians, but it was written to warn them of, of a different kind of danger, a danger that's less apparent and much more dangerous. And that's an inside attack. It's where Satan works through the members of a church. He works through vulnerable, ill-prepared Christians and through false teachers to try to bring the church down from within. The enemy of God hates the church. He hates it and he wants to destroy it at any cost. And we were reflecting on this yesterday morning in our recalibrate men's Bible study. We're studying the book of Acts and the birth of the church and we saw this same dynamic there. If he can't succeed with an external attack, he goes to an internal attack. And so we read these words of Warren Wearsby. These are chilling. He says, the admonition about the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6 was written to God's people, not to unbelievers. Because it's the Christians who are in danger of being used by Satan to accomplish his evil purposes. How sobering is that? Peter alluded to this in his first letter. When he wrote in 1 Peter 5.8, he said, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wasn't saying to watch out for the danger of the unbelieving world around us. He was saying, watch out right here. He was speaking to our propensity toward ungodliness ourselves, our vulnerability to an attack by which we unwittingly become an inside agent. And so, with that in mind, we launch into this second letter, this letter of 2 Peter. And the title I've given it this morning is Making Every Effort. 
And we're going to cover chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I cut it two verses short of what it says in the bulletin. And there's three parts I want to look at. First, the encouragement in verses 1 through 4. Then the assignment in verses 5 and 7. And finally, the measurement in verses 8 and 9. So we'll take a minute and just read through it first. It's not that long. And then we'll work our way through it in more detail as we always do. So let's read the text. I'm reading from the NIV translation. Beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may not participate, or so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to your goodness knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. This is God's word. And this letter begins with what I'm calling an encouragement. And we'll, we'll look at that in verses one through four. And I find it interesting that in this letter, Peter starts off by identifying himself as Simon Peter. In his first letter, he just said Peter, but here he says Simon Peter. We don't know exactly why, but Simon was his birth name, and Peter was the new name that Jesus gave him, and it meant stone or rock, but here he goes back to Simon Peter. I kind of wonder if it's this. I kind of wonder if he didn't want to lose sight of where he came from. Think about where Peter was to start with. He was... A fisherman, he was without Christ and without any lasting purpose in life. He was dead in his sins. He was slave to an empty religious system. He was without hope. He was without eternal life. That stands in contrast then to what he became. A friend of the living God, forgiven a citizen of heaven with great hope and with a great inheritance in store. And then beyond that, he was an apostle, one who was sent out with a God-given purpose, commissioned by God himself. Now, he's not being boastful about his new apostle status. In fact, he precedes it with the words a, a servant or in some translations, a bondservant. That's a really special word. A bondservant is someone who was a slave but was set free and then returns out of love to serve voluntarily. That's a bondservant. So he says a bondservant and apostle. That's who he was. So Simon kind of represents his old person, his old life, and Peter, his new life in Christ. And there couldn't be a, a greater contrast. And so Simon Peter is writing this letter 
And he's writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. As precious as whose? As precious as Peter and the other apostles. He's equating them. How encouraging to these persecuted believers to think that their faith is just as precious as the faith of Peter, the apostle, who walked with Jesus, one of his closest three friends on earth. He's equating those. Their faith is of equal value because it's not based on anything they've done. It's based on what this says, the righteousness of Christ. So when God the Father looks judiciously at Peter or at these persecuted believers, he doesn't see all of their failures, all of their sin, all of their disappointments. You know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Christ. So he looks at Peter, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He looks at these persecuted believers, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's the same. How righteous was Christ? Perfectly righteous. God the Father sees Christ's perfection. And it's not just Peter and the first century believers, it's you. If you're in Christ, God looks at you, you have the same precious faith as Peter and the apostles. God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see all of my junk, all of my mess, all of my failures. He sees Jesus' perfection. Praise God. Now notice also it says, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, that's not referring to two different people. It's not even referring to the Trinity in that like God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. I'm not a Greek scholar, but scholars insist that the Greek structure of this sentence demands that this is speaking of one person and one person only. And what it's saying, if I could reword it, it's saying that Jesus is both God and Savior. So you could word it this way, our God Jesus Christ and our Savior Jesus Christ. He's both, that's who this righteousness comes through. And then verse two says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, same person here. So two key words, through. Through, he uses this like four times in these first four verses, through. That's the avenue, the channel. That's the way through which this comes. And then the second word, knowledge. Grace and peace come through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then look down at verse three. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge, through our knowledge of him. So what is this knowledge? What is this avenue, this channel, this pipeline, bandwidth? Well, it's more than just information. We think of knowledge, a lot of times we think of like information. But this word that's used for knowledge is different. It's an expanded form of the word knowledge. And it includes both intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge. So throughout the Bible, this word for knowledge implies a very close, personal, even intimate 
knowledge or relationship. And so that's why you can say to someone, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a relationship, it's that kind of knowledge. It's not just head knowledge. If, if you were to pick up a book, you can learn all about a historical figure like George Washington. You can read all about his life and his beliefs and, and his role in the Revolutionary War, his founding of a nation. You can read all of his writings and even memorize the things he said. You can know a lot about him, but you can't ever know him in the sense of a personal relationship. Why not? He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. But that's not the case with Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead and he is alive and he desires to have a personal relationship with the people he created. So that's the whole purpose for the death and resurrection so that he might know you. You've you've heard the word agnostic. A person might say, I'm an agnostic. It refers to someone who believes that God is unknown and probably unknowable. Now the word agnostic comes from the same root word as ignoramus, not knowing. And so someone might say you can't know God, you can't know anything. They're not denying that there's a God. There might be, I just don't know. I'm ignorant, I'm an agnostic. Well, do you know what you get when you cross an agnostic with an insomniac and a dyslexic? A person who stays up all night wondering if there's a dog. <laughs> You'll get it. <laughs> Gotta think on it. You don't have to wonder if there's a God because God makes himself known to those who desire to know him. He says, if you seek me, you'll find me. When you seek me with your whole heart, I'll reveal myself to you. I'll give you a knowledge of who I am and what I've done, of my character, of my purpose for you. So Christianity is not a mystical religion. There's a lot of mystical religions. Christianity is not a mystical religion. It's built upon a rational, historical, objective knowledge of God, both intellectual and experiential. So don't listen to the voices of the culture, a dying culture. You're not a crazy person to believe in Jesus Christ. You're not ignorant and gullible. You're rational because you can know God intellectually and experientially. So how do we obtain this knowledge of God then? Well, for one, we're doing it right now through the study of his word. That's one way, studying the Bible. It's not like studying just any other book. It's an intellectual exercise. Your mind's engaged, I hope. We don't want anybody to check their brain at the door. But it's not just an intellectual exercise. It's also a supernatural exercise because God's word is unique. Through his word, his spirit brings us knowledge. He illuminates it. He reveals himself to us. He gives us insight and understanding into his word in a very personal way. In fact, we encounter not just the words, but the author when we read and study the Bible. Years ago, I, I was leading a Bible study at Lazarus House in downtown St. Charles, and I met a man named Jack Pebbler and his son and his wife and Jack was, 
he was, I guess you'd say, like a simple and unimpressive person. He had some, some intellectual impairments that, that limited his ability to reason in some ways. But when I shared the gospel with Jack, he received Christ as a savior. And then in the weeks that followed, an amazing thing happened. As we studied the Bible together, Jack showed insight into the text that went beyond anything we had studied, anything I had shared with him. It went beyond even his own intellectual ability. I'd look at him and I'd go, Jack, where did this come from? He's like, I don't know. Well, it came from God. To me, it was a perfect example of God illuminating the scripture and giving him supernatural insight into the text. It was the most wonderful thing to observe week after week. We can know God in part through his word. He gives us knowledge and understanding. But secondly, we obtain this knowledge through prayer. Prayer is a two-way communication with God. He not only listens to us, but we learn to hear his voice in our inner being. We learn to discern the voice of God from just our own thoughts. God told Jeremiah, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And Jesus said this, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He gives us an ability to discern his voice so we learn more about his person, about his character through prayer. And then a third way uh, we obtain the knowledge of God is through interaction with other believers. And this is really important because other believers are given spiritual gifts. And here's the purpose, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's Ephesians 4. So we need to spend time with other believers. God gave them gifts to build us up in faith and knowledge. And then a fourth way, we obtain the knowledge of God as we walk with him through life. As believers, we experience his presence and his comfort, his blessing, his power. Just talk to somebody who's been through a real severe trial and they'll tell you how they experienced God in a very unique, personal way during that time, whether it was in comfort or provision. We gain knowledge of him experientially as we walk alongside him through life. So those are the ways that we obtain the knowledge of God. Now look again at what this knowledge does for us. It says in verse two, grace and peace are yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then in verse three it says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. See, God's grace and peace and everything we need for life and godliness come through our knowledge of God. Knowledge is the avenue, the channel, as I said. It's the way we receive it. And And it's the source, and the source of this that we receive is called out here as God's divine power. It says his divine power. And when it says his, it's saying again, specifically, Jesus Christ, his divine power. Have you ever thought about what divine power can do? Think about that for a minute. Divine power can create and sustain the universe we see around us. 
Divine power can heal every sickness. Divine power can drive out demons and darkness. Divine power can even raise the dead to life. Jesus said, all power in heaven on earth has been given unto me. And he demonstrated it by the things he did. And, and the amazing part of this passage is you have access to that divine power through the knowledge of God. That's the avenue. That's the way, as Jesus said. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. His power. His divine power gives us everything we need for physical life and spiritual life and godliness. When you hear those words, everything we need, you might kind of think, of needs as being like just enough to get by. But I experience, and you have too, I'm sure, that when God supplies our needs, his grace is far more abundant than just like bread and water. Far more than just the bare minimum. In fact, up in verse two it said, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus. It's not scarcity, it's abundance. It flows abundantly through our knowledge of him. Another verse they often use as a benediction is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, and it says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, abundantly, exceedingly more than all we can ask or imagine. It's not scarcity. But there's even more to this. Look at verse four. It says, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. One of those very great and precious promises is this. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he doesn't just remove our sin he allows us to participate in his divine nature. Now, that doesn't mean we become little gods, you know, but what it means is we share in his nature, and that happens when he places his spirit in us, when he places his life within us, when he makes us a new creation in Christ. We're sharing part of his divine nature. And then even more fully, when he returns, he'll give us a glorified body, and scripture says, for we will be like him, a new body, incorruptible. So these are ways in which we share in his divine nature. This is a great and precious promise. And what could be more certain and secure than a promise that comes from God? God, who cannot lie, is making this promise to you. So what does this all mean? Here's what it means, whether for a first century persecuted believer or a 21st century believer sitting right here today. This is what it means. It means that you can live your life with, the, with confidence, knowing that no matter what comes your way, God's power and his promises will be there to meet your every need. That's living hope. Think about that whether it's a pandemic or a supply chain issue or illness or a death in the family or unemployment, 
whatever it is, you can live your life with confidence, knowing that no matter what comes your way, God's power and his promises will be there to meet your every need. Praise God, amen. I think sometimes we become a little too accustomed with the greatness of these promises. And they just don't impact us the same way anymore. Maybe you get home and someone asks you, well, how was church? Well, it was okay. I mean, we studied God's incredible greatness, but, you know, never mind that. What's for lunch? What's the score in a game? We just, we don't have that sense of awe any longer. I think it's maybe part of our fallen nature. You know the saying that with familiarity comes contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We're, just, we're, we're, we're familiar with it. We're just not that impressed anymore. Well, this, this Thanksgiving holiday, it's estimated that some 31 million Americans will travel by air in the United States. Do you remember the first time you ever flew on a jet? I do. Everything was like new and exciting. My face was glued to the window. Maybe yours was too. Hopefully it wasn't glued to the air sick bag. <laughs> but you're looking out the window and it's like, oh, you can see 200 miles. You can't even find your house, it's too small, but you can see mountain ranges and oceans and lakes and rivers and these amazing cloud formations. I never get tired of that. I don't care how many thousands of times I've flown, I always want to sit by the window because I want to take all that in. I want to be in awe of that. Just two weeks ago, flying out to Boise. Deborah, let me have the window seat. Thank you, honey. And I'm looking out, and we're going over to Rocky Mountains, right over Grand Teton, just south of Yellowstone National Park. And the Rocky Mountains already had snow on top of them. And I'm, I'm looking, and I even took a picture of this one amazing wash formation. I mean, to me, it has evidence of flood all over it when you look at how this landscape was formed. And I'm just taking this all in. I'm going, God, you are awesome. Well, I hope that when we gaze into God's word, we never lose our sense of awe for how awesome his promises to us are. It says these are very great and precious promises. You know, like David said, restore to me the joy of my salvation, that wonder, that awe when it was all new. We have to be careful. We don't want to lose sight of just how amazing it is. So, we get to participate in the divine nature. That's a pretty awesome thing, both now and more fully in eternity. And so Peter begins this letter by reminding the believers about these things. That's the encouragement. But now comes the assignment in verses five and seven. It says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Now, I like that he doesn't begin these verses with the word therefore, because guess what? We can see that so many times that we lose all sense of the significance of what it means. Look what he says instead. He says, for this very reason. 
I like that. That's what therefore means. For this very reason. He's going to go back to using therefore in verse 10. But at least he mixed it up a little bit here. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and six other qualities that follow. And all these qualities have to do with our growth in Christ-likeness or the big Christianese word, our sanctification, our becoming less like our old selves and our becoming more like Christ. And it all starts off by saying that we are to make every effort. Now, when I was growing up as a kid in a denominational church, my pastor said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, when it comes to sanctification, you can't try, you can't try hard, you can't try harder. There is nothing you can do to become more godly. It's all the spirit of God in you. Really? Is that true? Is that what scripture says? I mean, what we had as a result was a bunch of people sitting around wondering why they were not more godly, waiting for God to do something. They were like a bunch of pew potatoes. Nobody (laughs) felt they had anything to do with their sanctification. But I don't think this is what scripture says. It says to make every effort, and it's not just here in this text. Let me read you some others. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Hebrews 12, 14. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Romans 14, 19. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. 2 Peter 3, 14. And here in our text, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, Brotherly kindness and love. Maybe if I use some more modern vernacular, it'll come across differently. How about this? Rather than make every effort, what if I said, work like a dog? This is kind of the language we say. Work like a dog. Jump through hoops. Go all out. Give it your all. Bend over backwards. How about that one? I like that one. Bend over backwards to add to your faith goodness and these other qualities. Now, don't get me wrong. You and I have very little to do with our salvation. But we have very much to do with our sanctification. And I like to think of spiritual birth and spiritual growth in terms of physical birth and physical growth, because they have a lot of things in common. Three months ago, my first grandbaby was born. And you know what? I haven't shown one picture of him up here yet. I think I've exercised great restraint until now. (laughs) I'm having a weak moment. There is, that is, Gabriel Connor Hackbarth. That's my grandbaby. And I just love that little guy. He calls me about every other day on FaceTime. (laughs) And I love it when I see his name on my phone and I answer and we chat it up together. I just love it. And he's coming 
in just two weeks. He's going to be here with us. Here he is at 11 weeks old. That was about a week ago. Somebody in this church gave him that beautiful little blanket and to get the outline his age on there. So this was 11 weeks. I can't wait till he's here. I can't wait to hold him. But you know what? I don't have to wait because through the wonder of PowerPoint and chroma key, I can hold him right now. Check this out. <laughs> I got a... Nope. I got it. There. Oh, it's, it's backwards. This is really hard. I got him. I got him. I can, I can bounce him up and down. <laughs> this is fun. I can, let's see if I can turn him. There we go. Oh, <laughs> Now I got him. Now I got him. You can see everybody. Hey, buddy. Maybe one more. Let's try this. Woo! No hands. <laughs> okay. I caught him. I, uh, I better send him back home to his mom in Texas. <laughs> see you, buddy. So what's my point in this? I don't know. <laughs> Does there have to be a point to everything? <laughs> Why can't we just have a little fun? Well, I do have a point. <laughs> and it's this. If you're a parent, you had very little to do with the creation of that beautiful baby. Think about it. You were involved in the process, right? I mean, you had to do something. We call this whole thing procreation, but you didn't create that baby. You made a decision, you participated in it, I hope, it was your choice, and here comes this beautiful, amazing baby, but you didn't make him. It's not like you said, well, I'm gonna try really hard to make a cute one, or a smart one, or an athletic one. You didn't make that, but you were involved in the process. You made a decision, but it's God's workmanship. Now, while you had very little to do with the birth of that baby, the creating of that baby, you have a lot to do with the growth and maturity of that baby, right? You have to care and nurture and feed and train that baby so that he grows up to be a healthy and mature adult. What's well, similar on the spiritual side, see, if you're a believer, you have very little to do with your own salvation, your new birth in Christ. You were involved in the process. You made a decision, but God did the work. He's the one that lived the perfect life and died on the cross and rose from the dead and made you a new creation in Christ, gave you new spiritual birth. That was his work, but you were involved but now, when it comes to your sanctification, your growth in godliness, you have a lot to do with that. You don't do it all, but you have a much greater role in spiritual growth than in spiritual birth. In fact, you alone will determine just how far you go or how far you grow. That's why this passage says, make every effort. Give it your all. Bend over backwards. Do you remember what the, when the writer of Hebrews chided his readers? He wrote this. He said, 
by now, by this time, you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Who was responsible for their lack of growth? It wasn't God. They weren't waiting on him. God is chiding them. You should be growing, but you're not. They didn't make every effort. They didn't train themselves to be godly. And so here in our passage, we're told, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Another key word here, add, to be ever increasing. You could put the word add in front of all seven of these attributes. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to add to your goodness knowledge, to add to your knowledge self-control, to add to your self-control perseverance, to add your perseverance godliness, and to add to your godliness brotherly kindness, and to add to your brotherly kindness love. You get my point. Add, 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 increasing. So how do we add to them? Well, don't miss this point or we miss the whole thing. How do we add to them? Look back at verse three. We add to them through our knowledge of him. Through our knowledge, that's the avenue, the channel, the means, the way. Because his divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. The knowledge of him is the key. And it's for this very reason that we are to make every effort. You see how that all connects together? Now, if we're listening carefully and thinking this through, you might ask, okay, Paul, so which is it that leads to my growth? Is it his divine power or is it my effort? The answer is yes. (laughs) Yes, it's both, actually. You can't do it on your own. But God is not going to do it without you. It must be an intentional act of your own will. Your growth must be an intentional act of your will. When you make the effort, God supplies the power. It's a little like the synergy that we see in Colossians 1.29. And I love this verse because it represents this dynamic. It says, to this end I labor, struggling with all of his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Which is it? Is it my labor, my struggle, or is it his energy and his power? Yes, it's both. It's both. It's our labor, it's our struggling, which unleashes his energy and his power. Let me give you a formula. If you're like a math person, this is quite simple. No effort equals no growth. Little effort equals little growth. Much effort equals much growth. It just doesn't get any plainer than that. When you make the effort, growth happens. God promises that it will. He promises and he enables it, but you have to make the effort. And this is one of his very great and precious promises. You make the effort, and I'll make you grow. 
So through them, it says, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through each of those seven attributes. You probably know what every one of them means. But I do want to make this really practical. And I want to ask this. I want to challenge you. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. But how much effort are you making to pray? Are you bending over backwards to pray? Are you going all out? Are you working like a dog at it? Are you bending over backwards to be at the Bible study? at the women's conference, at the fusion fall retreat, at the men's conference coming up? Are you bending over backwards to be at the worship and prayer service tonight? Are you bending over backwards to find one or two or three areas in the church where you can serve? And then another question, just as important, if you did these things, do you think God would grow you more in faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love? Absolutely. He promises to. But the ball's in your court. Now, I know you can only do so many things. Again, I'm not trying to gild anyone. But when you get right down to it, there's probably a lot more that we could be doing in many of these areas than what we're doing now. And so this is the assignment. It's not my assignment. It comes right out of scripture. Make every effort. So then let's look finally and quickly at the measurement. We'll go over this one quickly because we're going to come back to it next week. It's going to kind of fold in again as we get into verses 10 and 11 and 13. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. The key word in this is increasing. We should possess equalities in increasing measure. It doesn't matter if you're a brand new believer or someone who's mature and been walking with the Lord for many, many years. It doesn't matter how much of these qualities you have. What it matters is... Are they increasing? Are you adding to them? Because that represents growth. It means we're growing. And, and we shouldn't be content to just stay where we are. We should be steadily growing in godliness. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. I love this verse. It's from chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. That's my prayer for all of us, that we grow in, in knowledge and depth of insight so that we might be godly. If we possess these these qualities in increasing measure will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of God. We can know him, but be unproductive. That word unproductive literally means fruitless. That's what that means. God wants us to be fruitful, not fruitless. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And then in verse eight, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is God's heart for us, that we are fruitful. It's his purpose. And we do that by remaining in Christ, by cultivating a knowledge of him. That's the avenue, the channel, like I've been saying here, it's called the vine. It's the vine through which the divine power flows, which produces the fruit in the believer's life. But then verse nine, a bit of a caution also, but if anyone does not have them, these qualities, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been, that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Now, a person who's nearsighted, I'm pretty nearsighted, I wear contacts. A person who's nearsighted, without correction at least, can only see what's in front of him. He can only see himself, clearly. He can't see other people. He can't see the needs of other people because he's focused on himself and his desires. Not only that, a person who's nearsighted can't see down the road. He has no view to eternity. I'm behind here on this slide. He has no view to eternity. Because he's nearsighted, he's myopic. He's only living for the here and now. That's nearsighted. And and this verse is nearsighted to the point of blindness. I mean, it's not just a little nearsighted. Like, you're kind of blurry out there. You can't even see other people because you're only looking at yourself and what you want and your desires. And you can't even think about heaven because all you care about is, what am I going to do tomorrow? How much money am I going to make this year? What am I going to do for college? That's, that's nearsighted to the point of blindness. And it says anyone that lives like this, he's either not a believer or he's a believer who has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. In other words, he's forgotten the purpose for which God saved him. You were created in Christ To do what? Good works, which he prepared in advance for you and me to do. So as we wrap this up, God's measurement is this. Are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? And if you're not, there's a real danger. And it's not just the danger that you'll be unproductive. That's that's a big danger. That's what he warns us about here. But it's not just the danger of being unproductive. It's the danger of being counterproductive. It's the danger that you open yourself up to an attack by the enemy and you become the insider in the church that he uses to tear the church down. Rather than building the church up, you're tearing the church apart. That's the danger. You become counterproductive. And Satan wants to get a hold of you and he wants to use you in that way. This goes for pastors as well as parishioners. When a pastor falls, he tears down the church. God help us. He becomes part of an inside job that Satan does to destroy the church. So for this very reason, we must all grow in godliness. We must make every effort We must bend over backwards to study, to pray, to fellowship with one another, and to serve the body. Then we'll continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, and his divine power will flow through us. This is God's word. This is what he's telling us this morning. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that Christianity is not a, a mystic religion. I'm so thankful that we can know you intellectually, experientially. We can know the living God, the creator of all things. We can know who you are and what you've done for us. And more than that, we can have a relationship with you. We can share in your divine nature. What an awesome reality to be in relationship with the living God. And what precious promises you've given to us. God, help us not to take these for granted. Pour over us a new sense of awe for these truths. And stir up in us a desire to know you and to grow in godliness. And God, help us to make every effort. Not just for us, but for you and for your kingdom and for your glory. And so it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.